Hello, welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and all things consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you can receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and subscribe. All content and episodes are intended for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Brent Varton, managing partner of Bullish. Bullish is an investment firm and a brand agency designed for consumer businesses living early on an S-curve. Some of their investments include Peloton, Harry's, and Warby Parker. Hot off the press, Bullish just released their report, Bullish on Consumer, operationalizing demand-side themes for better outcomes, which is located in the show notes if you want to dig in. We're going to dig into this report and the three cultural themes within consumer they're excited about. Without further ado, here's Brent. Brent, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you for making the time for us. This is great. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here, Brent. Really appreciate it. So you released this new report, Bullish on Consumer. So walk me through it a little bit. What was the origin and the purpose for creating it? First and foremost, we wanted to show a little bit of the secret sauce, so to speak, about how we do what we do at Bullish. Enough people have asked us because we have a slightly different set set of backgrounds And we've had some good outcomes around some of that stuff. And we're also big fans of this. We came in from the side of this whole thing. So we wanted to just share a little bit more about it. So people talk a lot about their investing themes and they say things like we go categories and deep categories and we cut it up. So we just wanted to show people our themes and how we construct them. And they're fundamentally based on something a little bit different than the way most people construct them. Most people, when they're in venture, they're kind of creating their themes based on what we call like a supply side bias and very much this idea of like, oh, we can build this thing. And what we try and do is take more of a demand side bias. And it comes from our our backgrounds in building brands is that we're always looking outside in. And the reason we like this demand side bias is we think when you build themes that way, they're preloaded with demand. They're preloaded with interest. So when we talk a lot about oh, it needs to solve someone's unique unique need. We're kind of taking that idea and extrapolating it into something much bigger where we look at these big cultural themes and they, they essentially help us narrow the field of focus just like anybody else does, except the DNA of those themes starts from consumer at the cultural level and then works in. So ultimately we can go, hmm, not just this is a business that could be built, this is a business that should be built. It's preloaded with intent, with demand, with something about it that people have been speaking about or even better, not speaking about yet. And that gives us such a big advantage when we go to market because it just preloads it with the idea that this is going to be something people want to talk about. It's not just going to be a a cool kind of novel thing. It's going to be something that's really solving things at a big cultural level. I appreciate that. Um, I also appreciate how you thought it, think about it in terms of maybe how other funds, not to compare yourself to other funds, but other funds might be thinking about it more so on the supply side rather than the demand side. Would love to understand what you mean by on the demand side bias and how that relates to you actually building out and going about building this report and even starting from, I know, human desires relating to cultural themes and kind of how you think about it from the early innings when you were kind of thinking about these things all the way to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So the way this thing starts, 
we do really base it in human desire. So we subscribe to the idea that desire precedes thought, which then precedes action. And a lot of people focus on behaviors and there is a lot of truth in behaviors. In fact, we all kind of are really bad witnesses to our, our own behaviors and why we did what we did, but we did it and it's real. So there it is. But desire is one of those things, particularly when you're a consumer, that you really, really have to have a good handle on. So we've pulled from academia on that. So this is based in 16 kind of immutable human desires that cross cultures, religions, backgrounds, ethnicities, all this stuff. We are, as human beings, kind of hardwired a certain way. So what we do is uh, every year we, we run a, a study we call Power of Why, and in it we're tracking at a macro level human desire across this country and the state of it. And we start looking at things these human desires are things like hunger, tranquility, power. These, these are different kinds of things that are in there that motivate people and create action off of this stuff. And there's, again, lots of academia around this. Really, really strong thinking around that stuff. So we monitor those desires um, and we kind of see where, where the wind's blowing on those things. We've identified a couple of desires which we call uh, bedrock desires because we see them every single year. They, they present themselves the same way as the biggest desires. And those are the desires around family. Those are desires around honor and desires around idealism. Every year we do this study, they, those things are at the, at the forefront. And then we, everything else we characterize as outlier desires. And those are things like saving, vengeance, independence, things like that. And what we're seeing is, is those have kind of different fluctuations from year to year. What we do is we use those and we essentially attach those to, to our themes. And they, they give us a little bit of an early warning system going into the year every year, the next year, about what the mood and sentiment is at a macro level that then points us in the direction of our themes. And our themes, which I'll just, I can talk about now, which is our themes are based in around huge tectonic shifts. So no, no different than the way I think anybody in venture thinks, of, thinks about it is every single person who's in venture is investing in better is investing in a, a frustrated consumer set, things need to get better, turning towards innovation and the private markets to do it because the public markets and, and big, huge corporate America can't move as fast. That, that's as old as venture is, is, is that there's a, there's a better way around it. I think we absolutely believe in the idea that there's a lot of 20th century toxicity across technology, across social stuff, across um, government, across all kinds of things in manufacturing that we're in the midst of a 21st century kind of renaissance around that stuff. And it's a coincidence. I think it's happening around the turn of the century around that stuff because we've had all this technological innovation. But culturally, there's just a lot of awakening that's going on around things can be a lot better and they should be a lot better. So we take that into three very specific kind of macro themes that we think about and that drives the nature of everything we're doing. And those themes are something we call ubiquitous wellness, which is basically the idea that in every single facet of our lives, mental, physical, emotional, metaphysical, that we are looking for a sense of wellness. And, and we count that up to the kind of the ascendancy of, of really genius around this and that, that we are really have woken up to that there is a lot to us in lots of different ways. And that's a thing that we think is going to be relentless in the, in the, the kind of the decades to come. The second one is this idea of uncompromising self, is that people are very, very uh, interested in constructing their realities and their identities around that stuff. And you can create incredible businesses around that. And then one that we talk about is individuals over institutions. Each one of these has 
three separate kind of sub themes inside of it that we go into as well too. And again, all of it is, is, is helping us look at over 250 different consumer categories and trying to help us essentially point our optics in the right place where we know where there'll be preloaded demand around those things. I really appreciate you discussing it. You're breaking down the three themes and the kind of three sub themes within the themes again are ubiquitous wellness, uncompromising health, and this idea of individuals over institutions that we value individuals and we kind of, we don't really value institutions um, enough. And again, the report's going to be available all in the show notes and it's really quite remarkable. I mean, just some of like the percentages that we see of people being disinterested in institutions, I thought that was pretty surprising and pretty incredible to see. When you were constructing this report, and I know that you went through a ton of interviews that you and your team at Bullish did, what were some of the most biggest surprises that you saw from your research? We've had long careers in, in and around, particularly around consumer insight and applying that consumer insight to business. So there's a lot of hours behind this. We started making it in a way, we were just kind of going back and looking at some of the things that really worked for us and then putting that down. So more people that join Bullish can understand it. And again, we are trying to be very open about this because we're learning too, but we also want to bring this perspective in. So you're asking about surprises. I think one of the things that was interesting when we started doing this is, is that those human desires, they really, those big bedrock ones, they don't shift. That was actually really comforting. In a, in a world where sometimes people can be very, very alone, as much as we've gotten to connect with one another, sometimes people can feel really like, where is the place for me and around those things? And I think as human beings and as people that are trying to start propositions for other human beings, it's nice to know that across all kinds of demographics, all kinds of psychographics, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, these desires are universal. Every single year, we all want the same things. These desires of family, idealism, and honor, those are universal. And that was a little surprising. You know, having been in, in people's homes doing ethnography throughout my career and all that stuff, it's kind of not surprising. Um, but it is, it is also, it is kind of surprising around that stuff. That's been great. I think the other thing that as we've been doing this research, and we pulled together a lot of secondary research as, as well too, is just understanding how much this individuals over institutions is really taking root. That's a really, really big deal. And some people talk about it as the idea of, I like that metaphor, which is, oh, it's driven by the kind of the internet, which is like first internet 1.0 was read, then it was right. That's kind of 2.0 and 3.0 is really around own. It kind of gets bubbled up into the creator economy or the empowerment economy. I actually think it's, it's much bigger than that. That's why we talk about it as individuals over institutions. When we go and we talk to people, not everybody is waking up trying to be the next kind of be real star, or Patreon star. Or whatever. There, there's a lot of Americans out here that are, are just very, very happy just living their lives, a life that is no really different than it was 50 years ago around those things. Yes, it's technologically enabled, but part of what we do is we go into people's homes. We don't just survey them from the, you know, behind our computers around those things. We're out in the marketplace doing personal interviews with these people in their homes. And I think one of the things that was surprising is when you take something like individuals over institutions is people want to learn things. So one of our investments, Sunday Lawn, that's not about being a creator or anything like that. That is about, hey, I have no idea how to do this thing called outdoor care uh, for, my, for my lawn and my home. We know from working with in and around home improvement that that's not a category that the, the home improvement business really cares about. But this idea that we all kind of lack a green thumb, 
What they want to learn is how to actually do this. And they don't want to be beholden to a brand or a product or anything like that. So I think it, it, is, it is one of those things. So as much as we're seeing that people love brands solving their problems, at the same time, you know, trust in brands is at an all-time low. So it's actually this, this kind of the simple application of just remembering that human beings, not everybody wakes up trying to be this, this superstar and around those things, but you can scratch underneath it a little bit and just go, hey, a brand can actually show up and just be helpful to someone and teach them. And by the way, that makes for a very good business. Because if you're able to do that, you can start creating a business where you're recommending and you're consulting around those things. And that's a whole other kind of sub-sub thing that we talk about called consultative commerce, which is just a great business idea. So it's been surprising to see people want some very fundamental things that aren't solved. As much as we get trapped in the headlines coming out of Silicon Valley that are very software-driven, there's just some really interesting things happening on a day-to-day basis They're just basic human desires that are just totally unresolved around some of those things. How do you also think, because I feel like another maybe big word that's that's come into play uh, in 2021, 2022 is community. And I know that there's a lot Mm -hmm. of ideas in this piece about community-focused brands. Like I remember a section seeking a community-based mental health workspace. But does a consumer brand need to have a community or even how do you define community um, in your own words in order to be successful in this day and age? Community is a big word. And, and, and I've heard you all talk about it a lot on, on this video podcast. And it, it, it is. Authenticity is a big word. Empowerment is a big word. Community is a big word. So for me, when I hear community, what I hear, I get a little, as much as I'm talking about know the consumer, understand emotion, I will get full-on venture capitalists on this. So to me, community means repeat rates. It means lifetime value. It means they keep coming back to you. And, and those are the things that we care about the most at Bullish. We care about AOV. We care about LTV, not just in a DTC format. Like we, Those are real big things. We have a couple other metrics that we care about a lot. In fact, we're building our own proprietary kind of brand equity study around this. We call the Remarkability Index, which we're well on our way to completing. So that those are some things that we really, really care about. So community to me is one, it's about loyalty and it's about that coming back and actually buying things. Engage, looking at that through the idea of social media is a little dangerous. Social media to me is a little polluted. Actually, it's more than a little polluted. There's just a lot of weird things going on on it. Um, and it's very easy to just kind of like something, endorse something, share something on. There's professional people that do that as well that sometimes aren't say they aren't professionals. Or it's just a weird place to actually check to see if you have community, so to speak. So first it shows up for me in, in terms of like, are you actually getting people to stay with you? And then are they talking about you? Not just an MPS score, but do you actually see them with natural advocacy for this business? And People don't really speak about brands that much. If you comb out all the influencer stuff that's on the internet, they, they really don't talk about brands that much. But when they do, it's super, super valuable. So are you giving them the occasion, the need? Are you performing at a high level that when, it, when those moments happen, when you have a friend, one of our businesses is in and around life after death, when you have a friend who's going through it, is your business set up to be a, a a recommendation for someone else who's going through that same thing. When you run into a neighbor who's trying to figure out their line, is your business set up to easily recommend around those things? That Those two things are, are really, really important to us when we think about community. The other reason why it's important is that's the way to get around the Zuckerberg tax. Those are the ways you go to market. When you have a rabid customer base, 
when you really are solving um, not just any but multiple needs around that stuff, when you have someone who feels like this is really remarkable and when the moment strikes or when the moment presents itself, I will probably talk about this around. They're not making a conscious decision around that. That's the way you go to market in new and interesting ways because that's the way you start new partnerships um, that allow you to kind of do a one plus one equals three nature around that stuff. And it is about understanding your brand so you can build not just a community around your brand, but a community inside of other communities. That's how everybody wins around those things. It also allows you to, to be able to listen and respond and maybe then even anticipate what they want before they can actually even say it. Um, but if you have a good dialogue going back with them, I think that's a good mark of a community. Those are great things. It gives you the excuse to say, we're going to build an activation or an experience around those things because that's what the, the people want from us, not because everybody's out there being like, I just love this brand and I want to do everything. Don't, I just don't fully believe that. I don't, there's a couple of brands in your life and I love brands and there's those things, but brands aren't people's friends and I don't think they should try and act like that. They are set up to solve problems. They are businesses and friends help you move. They, they like, <laughs> they help you like carry couches upstairs and things like that. Like brands can't do that. And we shouldn't use that kind of model as what it is. They can do jobs for people. They can keep getting hired and for that and that and that and that. So I think that's how we think about community. And that's why we think it's super, super valuable. We just try to think about going to market in new and interesting ways, which goes back to these themes, which is always thinking demand side first, demand side first, demand side first. And then you can figure out what you're supposed to go build. I really appreciate you sharing that about how you think about community and also how you quantitatively actually see if your community, it's, if it's working or not working. Um, one of the brands that I was so happy that was featured on your report, Public Goods, who Morgan's come on the show. They're awesome. I mean, obviously the report, it's about specific themes and maybe what's going to be successful if you're in these themes, just these kind of three consumer themes that you've put together um, over, you know, hundreds of hours of research, which is really appreciated also that you're actually serving it to the public, which is great. But, you know, in public goods' case, what I thought was really interesting that or insight that Morgan said, and I, and I wonder... How you think about build, and this kind of relates to how you think about maybe building brands from the get-go, is Morgan and Public Goods went multi-category pretty early. And yes, they kind of had this consumer that maybe wanted to go you know, multi-category, that bought Public Goods because they agree with the mission, they were very authentic, and they believed in you know, the products they were serving. But as you know, a venture capitalist, you also have to say, okay, will you know, maybe private equity or folks kind of uh, that are investing bigger checks... Would they also be interested, right? In um, um, when you're actually, we're actually thinking about investing in companies. And public goods had a Morgan talked very, very candidly about how it was really hard for him to fundraise because he was a multi category. And then investors were thinking, okay, you can only be single category because that's where kind of the exits happen to strategics. And so I wonder when you're thinking about these three themes and when you're analyzing brands that might be in multi category, how do you also think about if they could be big and if they are big? then what the exit actually potential looks like, even if they've really captured the consumer, if they more should be like single category versus multi-category. We know Morgan. We met Morgan a couple, a couple of years ago. We're not an investor in, in public goods, but big fans of what they're doing. And the reason they're on that brandscape is around that. It's, it's not necessarily that brandscape, by the way, isn't us picking winners. It's what we're trying to demonstrate in there is when you look at, and this, this is going to get to your question, when you, when you start looking at how to, piece things up from a human perspective, you think in these desires. So how we express, how we live, how we eat. 
And these are the human desires. And, and it's, a, it's a different way for us to think about TAM. We call it TAM or TAM with a heavy H, total human addressable market, which is the idea that one brand can actually solve multiple human needs around those things. From an identity standpoint, that could be solving a need. I think you've got to talk about share of need in, a, in lots of different ways because it, it can get you really realistic about how much we can really consume. There's the functional needs we all have, but there's the emotional ones we have too. And there's also money. Um, how many things, new things. And in the United States, um, in this country, you really aren't creating new categories as much as you're replacing them around those things. There's, uh, with all due respect to some of the people in this country, they're still suffering below lines, poverty lines and things like that. There's a lot of things that can be, that are already being solved. Um, so you're, the new stuff that comes in there is a, is a little bit different. So um, the way we think about how high is up is, is really around what multiple needs are, are, are being solved around that. There's a business like public goods that comes along and you go, that's actually really interesting to us because I think it comes down to kind of that traditional VC mentality of, okay, you need to be able to solve that one, that one specific thing, crack it open, and then great, someone's going to want that. I, I think it is, and other people on your podcast have talked about this and I agree with it violently. I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Silicon Valley. My family is there. I've, I've been out in New York for almost 20 years, but there is a kind of software build it and they will come and like innovate and make that thing modality that still comes into, into like real consumer venture. And it's a different thing. So I think something like a public goods, what they're doing, which is most interesting to me or potential acquire is they're building a rabid customer base. They're building people that go, this brand can solve multiple needs for me. There's a business we have in the portfolio called Ray, and it's, it's really supplements built for her or those who identify as her, um, and really just they. But they, they came to market with, I think, 30 different products, and they came to market with the idea that they could help and educate, and they could, they could build a brand that, that people wanted to hear more from and be able to make those recommendations. And I think it's interesting because that's a real great way to profitability. If you are able to create a customer base, get them to love you, like I assume is happening at public goods, you're, you're able to reacquire them off your, existing, off your existing relationships and sell them one more thing around that stuff. So what might be an interesting exit for public goods? It could be anybody who would be interested in a company of, of creating a tight relationship of listen and respond, make, create, and, and move on that they may not normally have because they're disadvantaged through the way they currently go to market and distribute today. Could be a huge private equity holding company because that's a potentially a big customer base that wants to own that, that they could put more, more customers in and around that stuff. I think it comes back to the basic idea that any brand that's, that's in there, if, if you are making a good customer base in the 21st century modality, you are a target uh, for acquisition or you have a really strong base as to why you might be able to go public because you've got a beholden group of people that really want you and want you to succeed. Going back to your three themes, ubiquitous wellness, uncompromising self, and individuals over institutions, how do these themes translate as well to different age demographics? Or how are you thinking about that when you're thinking about also investing and looking at companies? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is we don't think a ton about that. Because, but, but there is application to it. So we, we come from that school of thought is we're trying to get to psychographics. We're trying to get to universal 
kind of human needs around that stuff. And some of that stuff, to a certain extent, transcends generations. Yes, absolutely. There's this, there's this interesting thing, which is the cross-section of how generations feel, which is different from generation to generation. Absolutely. Full belief of that stuff. But, but there's also the idea of life stages, which are also, there's just some things that 20-somethings go through, that 30-somethings go through, that 50-somethings go through, that 70-somethings go through. And each generation will do it slightly differently around those, those things. But one of the things about individuals over institutions, we've seen this play at huge levels in the youngest generations and the oldest generations. And we've seen that in some of the things we've looked at in the kind of senior space that we haven't gone into yet, but the ability for to have independence as you get older and you lose capacity in some ways, that is a big, big need. So being able to still maintain independence as you get older, that's a real thing over individuals, over institutions around some of that stuff. It's a different set of motivators to a young generation like Gen Z, which is really disillusioned with you know every generation that's come before them um, started by the millennials, which are now, by the way, the oldest ones are like 42 or 43, which everybody forgets. The Gen Z and the generation behind them are very much really, really, really kind of disenfranchised in, in lots of different ways. Um, and they're thinking, why not me? And maybe I need to and all that stuff. And yes, 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 yes. So I think some of that stuff really plays out differently, um, but is, is still at the same same core. I think what we always try and do when we when we help consult with our brands and we help nurture them is really think about people as muses and think about who you're really editing the brand for and then trying to capture all those mini cohorts that you might go out and target through digital and stuff like that. But you still kind of want to see this muse at the center of everything you do and the way in which you go out to people. So that's a long answer to your question, which is we, we, we tend not to think about it a ton in terms of demographics. We just think about it as kind of stages and moments people are in and where these themes will be lighting up. But it, it usually has us jumping around uh, different ages and, and things like that. I really do appreciate that. How do you also think about, when do you think of then about looking and analyzing you know, founders and, and, and consumer brands? How do you make sure that, that maybe some of the founders that you, that you look for and talk to, that they're not only maybe talking the talk um, and being authentic, but actually are also walking the walk? And, and, and kind of talk to me a little bit about your due diligence process. So I think it's important to say, too, we invest at seed and series A. Um, so some of the earliest stages, I think people also call it dirt stage sometimes. We've, do, we've done that, which is pre-seed. Pre so it's a fun little metaphor. I think when we're looking at businesses, you know, Mike will say, my partner will say and all the time, it's like it's we really do bet on the jockey and not the horse. You know, one of the things that was really amazing when someone opened a couple doors for us and, and we started doing this, um, almost a decade ago is um, there's like an idea and then you meet a team and then you go, oh my gosh, there's another really interesting team and they have the same idea. Um, that it's really, really critical that you really believe in the, that founder, those co-founders around that. In fact, I just came off a call um, and depending on when this, when this airs, I'll make a bet we may, we're probably going to invest in this company. So how's that? We'll know by the time this airs. It's, it's undecided right now, but I think we're going to invest in this company. 
this group of founders was just fantastic, the way they interacted with each other. And, and I think, let me take a step back. The way our diligence process works, it's, it's relatively fast. Um, it has to be in this day and age. We'll look at something. One of us, our analysts will make a first touch. They'll bring it into an investment call. We'll look at it. One of the GPs will go, I'm interested in it. Let's go meet them. And then we'll start moving pretty quickly through that stuff. We have um, a diligence process that we go through, an eight-phase diligence process. We have eight different categories we look at. We rate all our investments that we make across these our little rubric of what we think is is good. It's not um, the only thing we look at, again, because it's at these these gestational stages, um, but it's a way of thinking and talking in the same way um, so that we have a consistent pattern of, of the way we evaluate these things. So we have scorecards and everything we actually put a term sheet out for, and we look back at those things, and then we then we cross-reference those over the next three years to see how those do. But the founding team, we, we really look at very, very closely. So we met these founders. We went in. We talked to some of their customers. They let us do that. That was great. We did that in our diligence process. Again, we didn't run a survey. We went and talked to some of their customers. We also will, because we do it and because we have lots of experience talking with people about what they like in something, we'll produce a little report and we'll give it to them, even if we never invest. And because we know that we have the skills, we have the experience doing it, um, and shucks, we're pretty good at it. So we'll, we'll just give it to them as part of it if we're going down this process. But the founding team, and I'll just use this one as an example, they're just really like each other and you can smell it. So we just want to, we want to see the whites of their eyes. We want to see them interact. We want to do it in a non-pressurized situation and we want to see how they are. And you can just kind of see there's, I know there's some, some teams that do some fun things like take them out to dinner, see how they order things like that. I think all that stuff's really, really healthy is to get them outside of a performative state and just see who they really are around some of those things. Sometimes you don't have the, the luxury of doing that, everything. And then the nature of the questions and the, and the way they work. So again, this company we're diligencing right now, obsessed with our customer, obsessed. And very quickly, we're getting into conversations about hypotheses that, that why things might be the way they are. And we're having great conversations, intellectually fruitful conversations about ways to solve that, all from a maniacal uh, kind of approach to their customer. Other people have said the same thing. It's very true. And then the nature of the questions they ask us. And it's really like the, the question they ask is, we say like sometimes we're a pain in the ass. And one of the one of the people was like, what do you mean by pain in the ass? So we talked about it. We talked about what it, what it is around that stuff. And it's their business. Like we invest in them and the decisions they make. But we also are a little different in that we usually only have a couple ideas. A lot of people go into businesses and they're like, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? We're really trying to listen to them. We come out of a service mentality um, from if you look at our backgrounds, we're really trying to listen to what their problems are. And then we're trying to leverage our experience and our expertise to try and help them solve those things. And we'll usually come back to the same thing. So they have moved on, but we're usually back there at the same place being like, hey, whatever happened with that thing? Until we've had a really good debate around why that is something to prioritize or why it's not. Some people like that, some people don't. But we try and talk about the way we work together around that stuff. We do have a lot of experience working with people in a service-based way. We just have a ton of it. Not, not to be that person, but humbly said, we've built careers servicing businesses. So we, when people say we have a service mentality, we know how to do that. That's a human skill. And it's not uncommon for us, if we're not on a board seat, that people want us to come to a board meeting. It's not uncommon if on a board seat, we're on the biggest check, that people want to talk to us because we do know how to use our ears and we do know how to make suggestions um, against the problems they have. What do you think is still misunderstood about investing in early stage consumer brands? 
I still think, and I'm not the first to say it, and certainly not on your podcast, I, I really believe that I still think people don't really understand that that consumer, when you, it's a big fat word. And like right now, it kind of just, it becomes a definition off of what happens on the West Coast. And it, it really is, they don't really just let the modifier drop off. So consumer, when it comes out of the West Coast, is like consumer technologies. And, you know, the consumer as it exists today is really about real, tangible things. So while you're not going to get 100x, 200x, 500x on this stuff, you can really get to 10x, 25x in some of our instances, 50x. And and along the way, you're going to see a real business from the start. You're going to see a transaction. You're going to see someone buying something. You're going to have a customer that you can talk to. Not that you can't talk to things in, in a consumer technology thing. Um, and you're going to have multiple layers to pull in order to try and go to market in new and novel ways. It's not just about innovating on the product, 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 sales, 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 the product, the product, sales, sales, sales. You really can go to market in a really multifaceted way if you if you really do understand your product and what that what it relates, what it results in as a brand and who your customer base and how they live their lives. Um, and if you really do what we really advocate for is really think about their decision journey, their life journey around that stuff, you can create new innovation ahead of schedule that allows you to create new places to, to find them uh, around that stuff and bring them back into the ecosystem. I don't think people really fully understand what a brand is, what it means to create a brand and how to operate a brand as almost an operating system for how you arrive in market and go to market. They think about it as advertising and messaging. Um, they don't think about a brand as an experience um, that's made up of, of many interactions and fits in and out of people's lives around their journey. Um, and that you can use that brand um, to create um, really delightful experiences for people and bring them back into your ecosystem around those things. Um, we're still kind of in the, I would say, there's some amazing founders that are coming out that have incredible instincts, phenomenal tastes around, around building brands, but we're still kind of catching up to some block and tackle stuff about how to position, how to deposition, how to create a series of messagings that really help you learn, but also help you open up new markets and how to use innovation as a form of marketing around some of those things. So it's all learnable. It's all, a lot of it's actually written. Practicing it is better, but there's, there's just some stuff that um, has really been out there for a while that can be leveraged and digitized for today. Love that. Love that, Brent. Completely agree. I mean, you know, this is a consumer VC, so completely agree with you that it's still pretty misunderstood on the investment front, at least about investing in, in, in early stage consumer and really like your thoughts around as well about how you can learn about it. What are some, I guess, for anyone that's looking to learn about even what you said at the last point, a position and deposition, what are maybe a couple books that you might have recommended? I'll give you a, I'll give you a bunch, actually. <laughs> there, the foundation of all positioning starts with a book by Reese and Trout called Positioning, which is maybe 40 or 50 years old. Um, there's, a, there's a new iteration of that by Marty Neumeyer, uh, who's written some wonderful books around this called Zag. That is a kind of a, a how to create really a, a brand from scratch. Great consultancy. I've never met Marty, so this is not a paid endorsement around that stuff. Um, Beautiful Constraint is a wonderful book about brands that are built on 
great strategy. That's a phenomenal book, phenomenal, phenomenal group of people there um, from Eat Big Fish. Great stuff around that stuff. And then there, a lot of what we, we study a lot is just human behavior. And there's all the great kind of behavior economics books out there. Uh, Dan Arley, Pretty to Be Irrational, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, all that stuff. The, there's a really lovely book that not a lot of people know about called uh, Herd, H-E-R-D by Mark Earls, um, which is dense and, and very, very interesting. But it really talks about the idea that we are a bit of a pack animal and we really do revolve against each other, maybe more than we'd like to admit. Um, and that's a really good book to understand people and our kind of our, our real human nature around that stuff. So those are those are some some great things. Um, those are some of my faves. I could go on a whole other thing about diffusion of innovations, which is actually what we were really interested in. A lot of people talk about disruption and we, will, we are way more interested in diffusion, how things actually spread in the most natural way. A lot of the stuff we do around power of why is built in and around diffusion cohorts. And in fact, our, the, our equity model that we're, that we're making has a lot to do with um, how things actually spread and measuring the effect of, of whether thing is, something is on the verge or not. How something could actually catch on for like a, like, like a wider kind of scale, more like mass market. It, diffusion theory is fascinating. The, if you look at where that stuff comes from, the curve around that stuff, the bell curve, early innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority laggards, that is, that is some like taproot thinking that wonderful thinking has been put on top of it. Um, when you think about tipping point, about global, we think about contagious. There's lots of thinking built on the top of that. It, a lot of it goes back to those things. Um, so a lot of what we do is we take some of that thinking in, in our power of why we basically have modernized those cohorts. So we have our own um, definition of what a real quote unquote influencer is and it's not all the cool kids on Abbott Kenny. Like, and it's now, <laughs> it's not exactly who you think it is. Um, um, you have certain psychology um, and you have a certain modality. You have a certain set of desires around that. We've seen that even in innovators, one of the, one of the number one desires that innovators have, it's not their only desire, but where they, where they are, there's a little bit of an anomaly is this idea around vengeance. And uh, that's a you know, really powerful loaded word. Um, but we think a lot about why that is, and we talk with, we're able to isolate people and think, think about innovators and talk to them about what, where that vengeance comes from. Some of the innovators aren't necessarily those cool, cool kids or the kids that were kind of put on the outside, and they're, they're looking to establish themselves and find new ideas and bring them back into the populace, and a lot of that's about acceptance around those things. It's not always the, what, what kind of social media makes it out to be. I mean, that's really, really fascinating, really, really interesting. Brent, thank you so much for your time. This has been, this has been an incredible conversation. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Re- really appreciate you doing this, man. Like it's, we've been thinking about a great way to get this out. And when this opportunity presented itself, I, Mike told me about it. I was super delighted. So love to debut this with you. Um, it's, just, it's just great. So thank you. We're so lucky. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And there you have it. It was tremendous chatting with Brent. I hope you all read their report, Bullish on Consumer. You can find the report in the show notes below. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>